to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Last night in this month-long tour of Jesus' life, we started to look at a New Testament description of Jesus that is sometimes overlooked. The first Christians described Jesus using the language that was usually reserved for the Roman emperor. Words like saviour, gospel, son of God, and so on. This wasn't an attempt to copy imperial ideas. Christians were trying to overturn them. The New Testament says that the true emperor of the world is not Augustus or Tiberius, but God's Messiah, Jesus. He is the one who will sit on an eternal throne. But we mustn't get carried away with this idea and think that the Messiah came to do battle with Rome. Far from it. The circumstances of the birth of this Son of God make clear that this is going to be a very different kind of kingdom. Luke's Gospel, which we started looking at last night, continues the Christmas narrative in these words. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 6. Emperor Augustus was born into privilege. Jesus was born to peasants and laid in a manger, an animal feeding area. Clearly, God destined his Messiah, the true emperor of the world, for a very different kind of rule. Now, this is a theme um, Luke wants to strike here and elsewhere in his gospel. The manger is a potent sign of the kind of kingship Jesus is going to embody in his adulthood. He's going to achieve his glory, not through power and coercion like the emperors did, but in humility. In fact, what is implied by the manger will be explicit at Jesus' cross. This emperor wins the allegiance of the world through humble sacrifice. He's a very different kind of emperor. With this in mind, it's worth reflecting on another passage from the end of Jesus' life, which challenges Roman pretensions about the emperor. In the crucifixion narrative at the end of Mark's gospel, we read these words, Mark fifteen thirty-seven: With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. How beautifully ironic, and I'm sure Mark wanted us to spot this, that at the moment of Jesus' death on a Roman cross, a commander in the imperial army declares the Jewish Messiah to be the Son of God. What Luke hints at in the beginning of his gospel, Mark makes perfectly clear in the climax of his gospel. From the manger to the cross, the true Son of God, the true Emperor, rules with humility and sacrifice. The values of Rome are being deliberately turned upside down. To quote Paul Barnett, who's an Australian New Testament historian and a former bishop, Let me quote his words. That a Roman, for whom crucifixion was an unmentionable obscenity, declares a crucified Jew to be the Son of God is astonishing. Romans only applied that title to the Roman emperor, who was associated with power and triumph, 
But this soldier applies the title to Jesus, a poor, humiliated, crucified man. This represents an inconceivable reversal in values. The clash between the kingdom of Christ and the empire of Rome continues through Luke's Christmas narrative to return there. As he describes the first announcement or gospel concerning the birth of Jesus. Now, I said last night that sending out heralds to proclaim gospels concerning the emperor's achievements was common practice at the time of Jesus' birth. I've already quoted the ancient inscription about Emperor Augustus uncovered in Turkey. I'll read it again. It says, God sent Augustus as a saviour for us to make war to cease, to create peaceful order everywhere. And the birthday of this God was the beginning for the world of gospels that have come to men through him. Well, Luke 2 describes a new gospel about a true saviour who brings lasting peace. The heavenly herald in Luke chapter 2 declares to the shepherd these famous words. Do not be afraid. I bring you a gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. The point of all this is to say that the first Christians, and Luke among them, believed they were in possession of a new gospel about the true emperor of the world. They employed Roman imperial imagery and applied it to Jesus, the true emperor of the world. His kingdom, they said, would bring peace not by smothering force, but by his death and resurrection through which he would restore us to God and bind us to one another in love. At times, this gospel sounded like a direct challenge to Caesar. And in a sense, it was. Uh, For instance, when the Apostle Paul was in Thessalonica in northern Greece in AD 49, his message about Jesus' kingdom caused a riot. And Paul's accusers in the city declared these words from Acts 17 verse 6. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When the Roman officials heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. My point is, the Christian gospel was and is subversive. Not in a military sense, but certainly in a social, intellectual and moral sense. The Christian gospel never said that someone else should be sitting on the throne in Rome, but it did insist that someone else held the throne of the human heart and mind, and that this has implications for the whole of life. Caesar might be entitled to my taxes and civil respect, the early Christians said, but he wasn't entitled to my love and worship, and he certainly had no claim over my ethics. Those privileges declared the Christian gospel belong to Jesus alone, the true son of the true God. Of course, once this message was detected on the imperial radar, Rome responded by trying to eradicate the followers of Jesus, crucifying them, burning them alive and using them for sport in the Colosseum. And yet, this movement around Jesus as the true emperor continued to grow. You know, in less than three centuries, 
and in a way that no one can really explain, Christianity captured the heart of Rome. By about AD 320, the name Caesar Augustus, who was emperor when Jesus was born, was a fading memory. And the name Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ, enjoyed the allegiance of millions of residents of the empire, including that of the emperor himself, Constantine. Imagine the feeling among believers at that time when Rome stopped producing coins which were inscribed with the words Caesar, Son of God, and started minting coins with Christ's name on them. Jesus was now being praised in a manner once reserved for the emperors alone. The outrageous idea put forward in the Gospels had become a reality. The kingdom inaugurated with a manger and a cross had conquered the empire carved out with a sword. We'd do well, I reckon, to remember this. Christ's kingdom comes not through violence or force, but through service and sacrifice. Hope 103.2 Thanks for listening.